All right, good morning, everyone. Good to hear you, Brother Don. <laughs> really? Really? All right, would you guys uh, join me and open your Bibles to John chapter 16? This morning, John chapter 16, we, uh, we started this gospel a little over a year ago now. I think I saw last week, the sermon last week was the 54th in the series, so um, we've jumped off the cover prayer for a while and, and such, but um, and though we've uh, been in, in John's gospel for a while, a while, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is quickly coming to a close here in our verses. It is still Thursday night, the night before the cross, and chapter 16 becomes the Lord's final instruction before he goes and pays for the sins of his people. This one long discourse started all the way back in chapter 13 in the upper room in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 are really jammed packed with all of God's heavenly divine promises as Jesus shares his innermost plans and purposes for not only the 11, but for all those who will come after them. Over these last couple of chapters, we have seen the promises of provision, of power, of protection, of peace, and of eternal triumph. And after celebrating the Passover meal together, Jesus and the eleven leave the upper room. Jesus says, let us get up and go from here. And they start their walk to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord Jesus Christ will be betrayed by Judas Iscariot and there he will be arrested. But in between the upper room and on their, their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has these final words of instruction. Up to this point, the overarching theme has been that of God's own love, God's love for his own. But then in John 15, we saw last week, Jesus dropped what must have felt like a bombshell to these disciples as the theme of love suddenly turns to that of hate. Hate eight times in our verses last week. He said in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Shocking words from our Lord. So as we now come to chapter 16, Jesus is continuing in the theme of persecution as he did back in chapter 15. The Lord was quick to remind his disciples that they would not face the world's hostility alone. Their witness to the world would be accompanied and empowered by the witness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it will be the work of the Spirit to confront the world, not only by testifying to who Jesus is, 
but also by convicting sinners of their true heart's condition. So let's start by reading our text once through together. And then after we can look at each section of of this really profound text. So we're beginning in John chapter 16, verse 1. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I have said all these things to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There is uh, no doubt in my mind, wherever this conversation was happening, that you probably would have heard a pin drop. As the posture of the disciples is coming more and more somber and sorrowful with every revealing truth that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. He has already told them that one of you will betray me. And the disciples were so shocked by this. The Bible says that they looked at one another. They had no idea who it was. In fact, each one of them around the table said, surely it is not I, Lord. Jesus has already said to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus had said repeatedly, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men, and they will spit on him and mock him, and after they will scourge him and they will kill him. And so for these disciples, though Jesus has been telling them these things for quite a while now, the thought of losing their Lord, the thought of a a bloodied, dead Messiah, uh, it, it was just too much for them to handle. And so the text says sorrow has filled their hearts. Now, Jesus has already stated 
the cost of discipleship. This isn't anything new. Um, during the Sermon on the Mount, early in Jesus' ministry, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As I mentioned last week, these aren't usually the verses you'll find hanging on the refrigerator at home. These are not the verses that you will put on the back of your bumper car, or the bumper of your car, unless you drive a bumper car. <laughs> but Jesus, still in preparing his own for discipleship, warns his disciples, yes, the, the, the world may hate you. But lo, I will be with you always. Yes, the world will be your enemy, but I will be your friend. Yes, the world will bring conflict, but I will send the comforter. Jesus doesn't smooth over the trials that they'll face. In fact, uh, he closes chapter 16 by saying, I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the spirit behind all of these warnings. Yes, in this world you will have trouble. Trouble is coming, brothers and sisters. But take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Well, <clears throat> let's get into our verses this morning. Um, you'll see on the back of your bulletin, I, I broke them up into uh, four sections today. <clears throat> Section number one is verses one through six, the conflict will come. Section two is verses seven through 11, the helper will convict. Number three, verses 12 through 13, the spirit will guide. And then number four, 14 through 15, the Lord will be glorified. All right, let's start with number one. The conflict will come. Conflict will come. Look again at verse one with me. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. See that little phrase? these things. It refers back to the Lord's warning that we read about last week in chapter 15. And clearly these verses are a, a continuation of the hatred the world has for Christ and by extension, all those who will follow him. He's saying, I've told you these things as to forewarn you. Conflict is coming. 
they hated me, they will hate you also. He, he doesn't want them or us, for that matter, to be blindsided by coming persecution. He wants them to be prepared. But why? Look at the rest of the verse. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. The ESV translates it so you'll be kept from falling away. Um, the word in the Greek, uh, scandalizo, it means to cause one to stumble or uh, to ensnare. The idea here is don't get caught off guard like an animal and um, get ensnared by a trap. Don't get trapped. Don't get snared. Don't be shocked. Don't lose faith. Don't be surprised. Conflict is coming. Had Jesus not warned of the coming persecution that these disciples would inevitably face, the disciples might have become disillusioned as soon as all the disciples started being executed. And as mass persecution broke out everywhere, they, they, they might have begun to wonder whether, after all, Jesus was really the Messiah. He didn't tell us about this. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm telling you ahead, they will hate you just as they hated me and just as they hated my father also. But this warning is different than the one we read about um, last week. Last week, um, the warning was um, more in general terms. In verse 2, Jesus gets even more specific. He continues, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now, that didn't just mean that you can't come to this building anymore and, and worship God. It, it meant a lot more than that. To be put out of the synagogue meant that you were excommunicated from everything. You were cut off from all religious, social, economical aspects of Jewish society. They would be branded as traitors to their people and to God. Families would often disown you. You were rejected and considered outcasts. You were put out of the city. No work, no housing, no family, nothing. And we saw this back, if you remember, in chapter 9 of John with the parents of the man who was born blind. You remember, they were so scared of the religious leaders and, and of being thrown out of the synagogue that they wouldn't even stand on the side of their own son. John 9.22 says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. It doesn't end there. Verse 2, Jesus continues as he, he prepares the 11 for the cost of following Christ. Jesus goes on to say, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. For many of the earliest followers of Christ, and still for so many around the world today, it wasn't just, I lost my job. It wasn't just my family disowned me. It goes even deeper and darker into sin. This is the work of Satan. Verse 2, an hour is coming, Jesus says, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
in a sick, bitter irony, the enemies of Christ sometimes think that by killing Christians, they are actually offering service to their God. Jesus is warning them that these blind guides are going to take this persecution even further. Not only are they going to kill you, but they will do so thinking that they are doing this as an act of service to God. And this is true even today in nations where in the name of Allah, militant Islam stands violently opposed to Christ and to his followers. It was true of the Roman Catholics as they burn an untold number at the stake. And it was true of apostate Judaism. Man-made religions reveal their folly by attempting to serve a false god and by murdering God's own people. Market persecution of Christianity comes from man-made religion, and it comes from religion who does not know God. And it really reveals the depths to which sinful darkness blinds the minds of unbelievers. If you think about it, this could have been a prophecy about one man. This was Saul's life before he became Paul the Apostle. In Acts 22, verse 4, it says, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. In his defense before Herod Agrippa, Paul elaborates on that statement. He says in Acts 26, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in a raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. After Saul's conversion, the hater became the hated. And in virtually every city he visited, Paul faced opposition from both the Jews and the Gentiles, thereby fulfilling the Lord's prediction in Acts 9, verse 16, when our Lord said, For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my How's that for a track? If you're wondering, how could seemingly good, moral, religious people commit such acts of atrocities in the guise of worshiping God? Jesus tells us here in verse 3. He says, and they will do these things. Why? Because they have not known the Father, nor me. Mark it down. Persecution of Christianity comes from religion. It comes from man-made religions who do not know God or his son, Christ. All the religions of the world are satanic. They all hate God. They all hate Christ. That is Satan's great deception. So far from serving God, such people do not in any sense know who 
the true God is. No one who hates the Son knows the Father. Jesus said to the religious leaders of Israel back in that powerful John chapter 18, 8, chapter 8, verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Man-made religion has always been a major perpetrator of persecution against God's people, and it works in the power of Satan. In verse 4, Jesus continues to warn the disciples of the coming conflict, and he gives another reason for his warning. He says there in verse 4, But I have said these things to you that when, not if, but when, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was with you. Essentially, he's reiterating what he said back in verse 1. Don't be shocked. Don't stumble over this. He says, I'm telling you all of this so that when their hour comes, and their hour is coming, you will remember I told you so. You'll remember that I told you this would happen. When the disciples will face this persecution, it will be incredibly important that the disciples know nothing has taken the Lord by surprise. And he says here, and you won't be surprised when it comes either. I have told you these things. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul also warns his young disciple by saying, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Peter also echoed the Lord's prediction in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, when he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do not be surprised, beloved, as though something strange were happening to you. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Now, this was common knowledge amongst the early believers. If you stand with Christ, you will be persecuted. Peter, who we saw last week, was so scared, he was scared of a little servant girl that he denied even ever knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we also saw being upon filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and the disciples went right to the temple to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. You remember last week we read in Acts chapter 5 that Peter and the rest of the disciples, after being beaten, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. The name. And do you know that every one of these disciples stood strong to the very end? They remained faithful. Every one of these disciples, except for the apostle John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, died a martyr. 
And what was their crime? They would not deny the name. They would not deny Jesus as their Lord. So they were slaughtered for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So, beloved, I ask you, are you ready for persecution to come? And, 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 and what I mean is, are, are you ready spiritually? Has the Spirit of God drawn his line in the sand where there will be no compromise? I'm not talking about, is your bunker ready? All right, I'm talking spiritually. Are, are you ready to stand boldly with Christ? Jesus pre-warns us, these things are spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling Peter pre-warns us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mentioned last week that up until now, it's been rather easy to be a Christian in this nation. And if we're being honest, we haven't had the same experiences that other believers have had around other parts uh, of the world where the cost of discipleship is far greater where the road to follow is much narrower, there the battle lines are drawn. There, compromise isn't an option. Well, before we move on, I want you to look at the end of verse 4 there. Um, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was with you. What does he mean? By that, Jesus is merely saying that while I was with you on earth, I was shielding you from all this. While Jesus walked through, walked this earth, the world only hated Christ. All the world's hatred was squarely focused on him. But now, now that he's leaving them, it's John 15, verse 20 again. Remember the words I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. From here on out, life is going to be very different for you. Very different. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The sovereign Lord. Here we really see Jesus assuring the disciples that when the time came for them to face persecution, they would remember what the Lord had told them. In other words, they wouldn't be caught off guard as to what was happening. Rather, they would remember the words that their Lord had said to them. And I'm sure that brought them an element of peace, and, and these words would strengthen them, for they would understand that they were truly doing the work of the Lord as they would be seeing the fruits of their labor. And all the while, they would look to the Lord for strength, and they praise his name for all of his faithfulness to them. And so it must be for us today. It reminds me um, of what Peter said as he encouraged the church in 1 Peter 4, verse 14. He said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now in verse 5, Jesus shifts the conversation. 
says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? I just have to say, that this, is, this is sad. This is sad. Our Lord suffered real, genuine grief. He really did. It reminds me of John chapter 6, when all of the followers, the, the big crowd that was there had left him because the words were too hard for them to hear. And Jesus turned to his 12 and he said, you don't also want to go with them, do you? Yes, it was true that back in John 13, Peter had asked him, Lord, where are you going? And in John 14, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So what does Jesus mean then? Seems to contradict when he says, none of you ask me, where am I going? I think what Jesus is saying here is all throughout this evening, he has done nothing but comfort those 11, telling them of all of heaven's blessings that they would receive. Everything that they were going to be receiving from the Father through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now I must return to the Father, and none of you even has the smallest interest in what that means to me. Jesus is grieved. You don't have any interest in me. None. Remember back in John 14, verse 28, Jesus said something similar. He said, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going back to the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you would have said, oh Lord, we're, we're, we're so glad to hear that you're going back to the Father, that, that your work is finished and it's accomplished. You, you've suffered enough already, Lord. We, we seek to see your glory. Uh, but that's not what we see here. But why? Verse 6 tells us the reason because i have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart you're just so overwhelmed with your own sorrow that you forgot all about me no one asked no one cared they were thinking more about their loss than than what it meant for Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into glory. This, this is sad, but we can relate, can't we? I can identify with this far too often when we face difficulties. We too can become selfish to our, our own needs rather than considering what is God doing in, in all of this? What is God's purpose? Regardless of what's going on, I want to give him a sacrifice of praise. I know for me, I am always at my worst when I have my eyes squarely on me. Especially in times of conflict. We can so easily miss all that God is doing when we are focusing on is my life and, and what my needs are. Rather than humbling ourselves and putting our trust into it. What is God? doing now now well let's move on to the second section as we come to verses 7 through 11 as Jesus reiterates the greatest of all promises 
He will send the helper, and the helper will convict. The helper will convict. Verse 7, Jesus continues, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus has already introduced the Holy Spirit to us back in John chapter 14, verse 26. There uh, in 16, he said to the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another one like me, another, another helper, one that will come alongside you and help you to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The beginning of the Holy Spirit's saving ministry to the lost is revealed in that word convict. Convict. Now this world can be used to describe convicting in the judicial sense, um, like a criminal who's being convicted of wrongdoing. And, and that is true here. But it, it also refers to exposing of one's sins. Exposing, being convicted in order to expose and in this context of sin, being convicted of the reality of your sin and the sinner's need for a savior. When man is convicted by the Holy Spirit, he becomes acutely aware of their sin. They, they have a very real sense then of the holiness of God. And that their life in both thought and in deed is nothing but dirty rags next to God's holiness. When we become aware that we have sinned against a holy and just God, suddenly the sinner realizes they're not nearly as good as they thought they were. <laughs> so far, we have seen the focus of the Spirit's role is that of a helper. Like I said, literally, one that comes alongside to help. For he is our comforter. He is our advocate. And that is all true. But here, Jesus is speaking of the Spirit's role as a prosecuting attorney. I want you to notice verse 8. In verse 8, we see the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning three things. We'll go through these. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. First, Jesus said... And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Sin here is in the singular form, so it refers to not just sin in, in general, but specifically the ultimate sin to refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 9. Concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. It is to die in unbelief Dead in your sins. Earlier in John 3 verse 18. Jesus said. He who believes in him. Meaning Christ. Is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In John 5, verse 40, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders saying, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Life. Then in John 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So like a prosecuting attorney, the Spirit of God convicts the sinner's heart to turn away from their sins, and he leads you into faith in Jesus Christ. One of the best illustrations of this is Acts chapter 2, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible says in Acts 2, verse 37 through 38, Now when they had heard this, this was the people, the Jews, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, here comes the conviction, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. That is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people dead in their sins, instantly transformed and forgiven by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on, when Jesus says he, the Spirit of God, will convict the world, what does that mean? We've spent some time in the world and the, and the system of the world. Here it's a little bit different. That what does he mean he will convict the world? The world here means um, everyone without distinction. Uh, he will convict both Jew and Greek, free and slave, male and female. He will convict the world. So where Jesus' earthly ministry then leaves off, the Holy Spirit comes in. He takes it up, working in the hearts of men and women all around the world as he convicts the world concerning sin. Listen, no one will ever be saved unless the Holy Spirit drops the scales off of your eyes and they recognize they are a sinner in a desperate need of a Savior. Amen? I know a lot of us are praying for a lot of people to be saved. We are praying for our children. We are praying for our parents. We are praying for loved ones. We are witnessing. We are sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But unless, unless the Holy Spirit invades the heart and convicts them of sin, they will not be saved. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. Only God. Verse 10, Jesus continues concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The righteousness here is that which belongs only to Christ by nature as the only Son of God. And this is the uh, flip side of, of the coin to the previous point. Not only does the Spirit convict unbelievers of their sin, 
but also of the necessity of having perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us. Jesus himself is the standard of righteousness. When our wickedness is compared to his sinless holiness, only then is our sin, our sin seen uh, for the detestable evil that it is. Romans 3 says, there is none who are righteous, not even one. There are none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. But on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon him, and in doing so, he paid our debt. Romans 5, verse 9 says, We have now been justified by his blood. And, and part of justification is the imputation of Christ's own righteousness. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He said, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit and we put our faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, we are accredited His righteousness. Romans 4, verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then lastly, not only will the Holy Spirit convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness, but in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is Satan. He is called the ruler of this world, but don't let that title fool you. He has already been judged. He has been cast out of heaven, um, along with the rest of the fallen angels who had uh, rebelled against God. His judgment came at the cross. That is where Satan was totally and completely defeated at the cross. In, in what appeared to be his hour of triumph was in reality the hour of his undoing. Though Satan has been defeated, the final sentence against him won't be carried out until the end of the millennium or the thousand year reign when in Revelation 20, we read in verse 10, it says, And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Take heart, beloved. Take heart. The world system that exists under the sway of the evil one, has been defeated. The gospel of the crucified and risen Christ seals the defeat and the condemnation of Satan. The, the world has backed a loser, okay, in going with Satan. He is defeated and he has been judged. Jesus said back in John 12, 31 through 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus will, 
Jesus said conflict will come. Secondly, he said the helper will convict. And points three and four are pretty quick. The spirit will guide. The spirit will guide verses 12 through 13. If the Holy Spirit guarantees that the church will have an impact on the world, which it does, he also makes sure that the, that the church will be equipped to make that impact. And that's the thought behind these verses. Verse 12, Jesus continues. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. These, oh, these disciples, they, they couldn't process any more spiritual truth. They, they were just about at the end. Jesus has been unloading promise after promise, truth after truth. Everything from chapter 13 is this one long discourse. The night before the cross. And don't forget, they're in this deep emotional sorrow on top of it over the fact that their Lord is leaving them. It wasn't until after the cross and after the resurrection that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they start putting the whole thing together. Verse 13, Jesus continues, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Don't worry, it's not going to be by your strength. When the spirit of truth comes, he is going to guide you into all the truth so whatever their present inabilities were the day was soon coming when the holy spirit would come upon them and he would be the one to guide them listen if the spirit of truth wrote this book and this book is from god is that not the best confirmation we have that this book is inerrant that that the Bible is infallible? Verse 13, Jesus continues, For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. During his incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ did not act on his own authority. We see him always working under the will of the Father. And... So within the perfect unity of the, of the Godhead, the Spirit, likewise, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from the Godhead, he will speak. This is profound. Just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit will always act in perfect harmony with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and it will be, the Spirit will be consistent with God's will. He, he never speaks apart from the Father's will. Nor does the Son. All three are always in perfect unity and agreement. Verse 13, he continues, And he, the Holy Spirit, will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit will guide these apostles not only to write the gospel account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he will guide them to write God's revelation of Scripture, completing our New Testament, including Paul the Apostle, Remember back, it was John 14, 26, that Jesus said to them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and this is important, and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John might have written this gospel 50 years from this, from this time period. How on earth did he remember what to write? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says that all scripture, I love this, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Amen. Righteousness. 
Do you realize that when the words of this Bible come alive and they speak to us, one of the first ways that we can know that we are truly saved? You want to know if you're saved? Uh, does God's word speak to you? <laughs> Do you love this book? Uh, do the words in this book speak life into your heart? Does he, the spirit, minister to you? The answer is yes. And that's just one of the ways that we can know God's spirit is in you. Apart from God's spirit, these are just some old words of wisdom. And who knows if they're true? We have all these different authors and, you know, there's different copies. And we don't, you know, we don't know what to believe. But Jesus says, you know. Jesus says, you know, because he is with you and he will be in you. And so as we apply this to our own lives, the spirit of God continues to guide us in all truth. He comes alongside of us. He is our comforter. He is our advocate. He teaches us as we meditate on his word. He equips godly men to preach his word as he breathes truth into our lives. And the spirit does all this so that Christ's life may be lived out in us and through us as we are being conformed into the image of his son. Amen. All right. Conflict will come. The helper will convict. The spirit will guide. And then lastly, the Lord will be glorified. The Lord will be glorified. Jesus continues, verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Glorify me. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. It is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by disclosing all truth about who he is and the work that he's accomplished. The Spirit of God isn't uh, over here trying to draw attention to himself, but rather he is pointing you to Christ. Pointing you to Christ. You need to be very careful today and use discernment. If someone is only teaching about the Spirit and he is not glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, again, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. What will the spirit do, Jesus says? He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. To you. The spirit's message is never, look at me, uh, listen to me. Um, oh yeah, come to me, but always look at him. See his glory. Go to him, hear his words, and taste his gift of joy and peace. Any preacher or ministry that glorifies self and doesn't point all the glory to Christ is a false teacher. The work of the Holy Spirit always exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus closes this section, verse 15, powerfully. All that the Father has is mine. Oh, the Lord's getting selfish, it sounds like. All is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Wow. In our verses here this morning, Jesus unveils to these sorrow-filled, beaten-down disciples and, and he looks down the corridor of the future. Jesus tells them, it is to your advantage that I go away. And these disciples had to be thinking, how is it going to be better with you gone away? They just couldn't wrap their heads around this yet. But then something incredible happened. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit came upon them. 
and the very presence of God lived in them, directed them in all truth and everything the Lord had said and empowered each one of them, wherever they were, to carry out their calling, their ministry without stumbling. Without stumbling, just as Jesus had promised. Let me show you the proof of this real quick. It's in Luke 24, verse 50. Here's the proof. This is after our Lord's resurrection, right before he ascended back to the Father in heaven. We read this, verse 50. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany in his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, the disciples, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Wow. You see, Jesus was right. Jesus was right because they came to understand much more about who Jesus was and the work that he came to accomplish. Listen, the Holy Spirit's ministry, simply put, is to apply the life, death, and resurrection work that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. This is one of his primary works. One of my favorite stories is also in Luke 24, and we'll close with this. We read about two men who had left Jerusalem, and, and they were also saddened, um, not knowing of the Lord's re resurrection and all that happened. The, the grave was empty. He was missing. These girls were saying something. That they didn't know what was going on. And so they're walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up. Yet, he kept their eyes from knowing it was him. <laughs> so imagine, these two guys walking, defeated, all torn up over everything that had happened, and Jesus is walking along beside them, and they got no idea it's Jesus. <laughs> and so he says to them kind of tongue-in-cheek, um, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one who doesn't know the things that have happened the last couple of days? And you just got to love the Lord's response. He says, what things? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? So then these two disciples tell Jesus everything that had happened. And Jesus is patiently listening while they're walking down the road. And that part of the story is great. But what I wanted to share with you is Jesus ends up holding a a personal Bible study with them towards the end of the story. Imagine Jesus Christ sitting down with you. Dad was just talking about how great it is to get together and fellowship and have a Bible study. Imagine coming in Sunday and the Lord is teaching Bible study. All right? And this says that he took them through the law all the way through the prophets and teaching them it was all about him. It's a hymn book as we like to say well after breaking bread their eyes were opened and jesus then vanishes from their sight verse 32 and they said to one another were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us where jesus earthly ministry ends the spirit picks it right back and now this same spirit, the spirit of truth, who guides and teaches us all truth and all scripture, 
he leads us. And just as Jesus said, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and will declare it to you. To you. What a God. What a Savior. And the most beautiful part is Christ receives all of the glory. If uh, you are in need of prayer this morning, if God has convicted your heart this morning of your sin today and of Christ's righteousness, we would love to pray with you this morning. We'll have the leaders down front here. But let's stand together and sing, How Great Is Our God.